0: Chapter eleven of Turns About Town by Robert Cortez Holiday This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Chapter eleven Bidding Mr Chesterton Goodbye The note, which came altogether as a surprise, read My husband suggests that if you have nothing better to do, perhaps you would look in upon us on Wednesday evening at about eight thirty. Mrs. Chesterton further said, in giving the address, that they had a little apartment lent to them for the last week of their stay here. She had asked Mr. Wolcott to come, too, and Gerald Stanley Lee. We can only promise you smokes and talk. I wondered, as I hurried for the bus, whether I'd have time to get my shoes polished. It was precisely the hour appointed when I reached what I took to be the door. The hallman declared that he had gone out. I insisted that the hallman telephone up. No answer, he said after a bit, and hung up. Now, what do you think of that? Well, I'd take a walk and return a little later. As I was rounding the corner coming back, I saw an agile, rotund figure with a gleam of white shirt front in the half-darkness "'mounting the dusky steps instead of descending into the lighted area way. "'Looked kind of like Mr. Wolcott. "'If so, the gentleman was going wrong, so I called to him. "'He has not come back,' the hall man asserted, "'but assented to our demands to ring up again. "'No response. "'It was about an hour ago he went out,' he replied to our question. "'Standing there, Mr. Wolcott and I contrived several theories.' One was that Mr. Chesterton had intended to return by now, but had lost track of the time. Another was that possibly Mrs. Chesterton had invited us on her own hook and had overlooked notifying Mr. Chesterton of the matter. "'Has a third gentleman been here?' we asked, meaning Mr. Lee. "'No. We went for a stroll. It was nine o'clock.' And Mr. Wolcott's manner indicated that he was inclined to take some sort of revenge on the hall man. Was he, the hall man, certain that he had everything straight? Sure, he nodded. It's Mr. Cushman's apartment. Mr. Cushman's apartment? Had we then been blundering in the wrong place all this time? Mr. Chesterton, roared Mr. Wolcott. Yes, yes, he understood that. The gentleman had come in yesterday. That was right, according to the note I had had from Mrs. Chesterton. So we demanded that the man make another effort at the telephone. Ah, he heard something. It's all right, he mumbled. They are there. As we got out of the car, Mr. Chesterton was cramming the tiny hall. He was in an attitude which I took to be that of a bow. But I later discovered, as he shuffled back and forth about the apartment, that he walks that way all the time now when in the privacy of his own quarters. Mrs. Chesterton greeted us as we entered the room, Mr. Chesterton trailing in behind us and continuing a welcoming murmur which had somewhat the sound of a playful brook. Mrs. Chesterton ensconced herself behind a tea table. Mr. Chesterton lumbered about with cigars, he disclaimed the great easy chair by the electric table lamp in which it was unmistakable that he had been sitting, but was prevailed upon to return to it. In apology for the lateness of our arrival, we mentioned our difficulties in discovering that he was in. Mr. Chesterton seemed bewildered by this circumstance. He shook his head, and, evidently referring to the hall men, said he was not able to understand that foreigner at all. "'That foreigner?' We smiled at the Englishman. I think it most likely that the explanation of his not having heard our earlier rings was that he was not familiar with the system of bells in the apartment. "'They had not been out,' he declared. "'Oh, yes, they had been out, too, a good while ago, to get something to eat.' "'We're camping here,' he said, in a rather bohemian fashion. "'Didn't they enjoy that as a change from life in fashionable hotels?' "'Oh, yes, very much.' "'They wondered if Mr. Lee were not coming. "'Yes, he had assured me that he was, "'when I had seen him that afternoon at the club. "'In fact, we had discussed what we would wear, "'and had agreed on dinner jackets.' Mr. Chesterton was wearing a braid-bound cutaway coat of felt-like material, very much wrinkled in the skirt, and dark striped trousers of stiffish quality, but not recently pressed. His batwing collar had a sharp crease extending outward at one side, as though it were broken. Though it was a very warm night for early spring, a hot night indeed, he wore uncommonly heavy woolen socks, which were very much coming down about his ankles. His comically small English eyeglasses, with a straight rod joining them across the top, were perpetually coming off his nose. On one finger he wore a rather large ring. I noticed that for so large a man his hands were somewhat small, and were delicately made. At one side of him were three ash trays, one of them a huge brass bowl, well filled with tobacco ash, and at the other side of him one tray. Well, what sort of time had he been having? How far west had he got? He had been as far as, I think, Omaha. Halfway across, he said. He had been much mystified by a curious character he had run into there, a strange being whose waistcoat and coat front were covered by symbolic emblems, crescents, full moons, and stars. This person had accosted him in the street, saying, And so you are a lecturer. The man had then informed him that he also was a lecturer. He lectured, he said, on astronomy. Indeed, in my country, Mr. Chesterton had said, it is not the custom for astronomers to display on their person d- devices symbolic of the science in which they are engaged. Next, the man had opened his coat and exhibited the badge of a sheriff, or some sort of officer of the peace. Mr. Chesterton had been astounded to discover the functions of a man of science, a lecturer, and a policeman united in one and the same person. It was quite evident that this as I assume he was, harmless lunatic, had made a most decided impression upon Mr. Chesterton's mind. He took the eccentric individual with much seriousness, apparently, as some kind of a type. Indeed, I feared that we would never get him switched off from talking about him, and I have no doubt that in the course of time, this ridiculous astronomer will appear as a bizarre character in some fantastic tale, a personage perhaps related to Father Brown, or something like that. Mr. Chesterton observed that he had enjoyed the opportunity of seeing various grades of American life, that he had been in the homes of very humble people as well as in houses of persons of wealth and social and intellectual position, in a former article, I noted how Mr. Chesterton had been greatly startled to find what he then called wooden houses in this country, and such multitudes of them. He now returned to this phenomenon. What was his one outstanding impression of the United States? Well, he remarked that he had said it before, but he continued to be chiefly struck by the vast number of frame houses here, Mr. Lee arrived. A gentleman who looks very much as though you were looking at his reflection in one of those trick mirrors, such as they have at Coney Island, which humorously attenuate and elongate the figures before them. Or, again, perhaps more justly still, a gentleman who looks as though Damier had drawn him as an illustration for Don Quixote. In his evening clothes, to put it still another way, "'a gentleman who looks much like a very lengthened shadow "'dancing on a wall. "'Mr. Whistler would have made something very striking indeed "'out of Mr. Lee in a dinner coat, "'something beautifully strange. "'I do not know that I have ever seen anything finer, "'in its own exceedingly peculiar way, "'than Mr. Lee, thus attired, with a cup of tea in his hand. "'Do you like wine?' Mr. Wolcott asked Mr. Chesterton and told him of a restaurant nearby where this could be obtained. Our prohibition, Mr. Chesterton said, did not bother him so much as might be thought. As for reasons having to do with his health, he was, as you or I would say, off the stuff at present. One of us, Mr. Wolcott, I think, commented upon the sweep of Mr. Chesterton's fame in the United States. The opinion was advanced that the evening of the day he landed, his arrival was known in every literate home in New York. Mr. Chesterton was inclined to think that his notoriety, in large measure, came from his appearance, his époir du Knowledge of him had spread through the notion that he was a popular curiosity, it was contended that his writing had been well known over here ten years before his pictures became familiar to us though of course i myself do think that the pictorial quality of his corporeal being has been very effective publicity for him then there was another thing which mr chesterton thought might to a considerable degree account for his american celebrity that was this tag of paradox People loved easy handles like that, and they went a long way. Somehow or other, we let this point pass, or it got lost in the shuffle, and the discussion turned to the question of whether there was an American writer living whose arrival in England would command anything like the general attention occasioned by Mr. Chesterton's entrance into the United States. We could not think of anyone. Mark Twain, of course, yes, O. Henry, doubtless, too. And, indeed, in the matter of years, O. Henry might very well be living now. Mr. Chesterton quite agreed as to the English welcome of Mark Twain or of O. Henry. Tom Sawyer and Huck, he said, musingly, certainly were universal. Then, ponderingly, he observed that English and American literature seemed to be getting further and further apart or more and more distinct, each from the other. That is, he remembered that when he was a boy, his father and his uncles simply spoke of a new book having come out, whether it had been written in England or in the United States. As in the case of the Autocrat of the Breakfast Table, when it appeared it was enjoyed and talked about by everybody in England, but not spoken of there as a new American book, it was a new book that's all. Now, however, with Englishmen impressed by the Spoon River anthology, and rightly so, or by Main Street, it would not be that way. He had much liking for O. Henry, but he had begun by not liking him. He had been puzzled by the queer commercial deals on which so many of the stories turned, buying towns, selling rivers, he had, even now, to reread much of the slang to get the meaning. And so we talked a while of slang. "'You have an expression here,' said Mr. Chesterton, shaking his head as though that were something very remarkable indeed. "'A bad actor. Much mirth from Wolcott, Lee, and Holliday. Now, in England,' Mr. Chesterton continued, "'we mean by that one who has mistaken his vocation as to the stage.' But I discovered that here it has nothing to do with the theatrical profession. Then it developed some reporter in the West had referred to him as a regular guy. At first, Mr. Chesterton had been for going after the fellow with a stick. Certainly a topsy-turvy land, the United States, where you can't tell opprobrium from flattering compliment. Then one of us told Mr. Chesterton a story of a prized line of American slang. He, the teller of the story, had got a letter in which a friend of his had been spoken of in a highly eulogistic fashion. Thinking this opinion of him would please his friend, this man showed the letter to him. The gentleman, so much praised in it, read the letter and remarked, Well, whenever I get the hand, I always see the red light. Mr. Chesterton looked dazed. You'll have to translate that to me he said. It was explained to him that the meaning of this was that whenever this person heard applause of himself, he always scented danger. Oh, oh, I see, crowed Mr. Chesterton. The hand, the hand, and he began clapping his hands in illustration of the figure with much glee. Glee, yes, and crowed also. They are the words some of the words, to describe Mr. Chesterton's sounds. His utterance was rapid, melodious. The modulations of his softly-flowing voice had curiously somewhat the effect of a very cheerful music-box. His easy and very natural command of a great multitude of words was striking. And yet there was something decidedly boyish about the effect of his talk. I think the cause of this was, for one thing, the rather gurgling enjoyment with which he spoke, and for another thing, in his impulsive concern for the point of his idea, he frequently did not trouble to begin nor end sentences. He just let her go. But the fundamental source of this boyishness of spirit, I think, was this i do not believe i have ever seen a man who had borne the brunt of life for some forty-five years and still retained such complete abounding unaffected and infectious good-humor as mr chesterton as i believe i have said somewhere before mr chesterton was saying it seems to me that the best-known character in literature is sherlock holmes Mr. Wolcott was inclined to consider Zvangali. Dear me, Zvengali may have been in the running at one time, but it strikes me that today he is pretty much gone by the board, somewhat to mix the figure. As to detective stories, they are essentially domestic, declared Mr. Chesterton. Intimate, all in the household, or ought to be. The children's nurse should murder the bishop. These things, where the foreign office becomes involved and, chuckling, Indian rajahs and military forces come in, are never right. They are too big. The detective story is a fireside story. Had Mr. Chesterton been much to the theater while here? No, the only thing he had seen was the bat, something like anguish on the face of the dramatic critic of the New York Times. Why, he, Mr. Chesterton, had liked the bat a good deal. Speaking of plays, the American presentation of magic came into the conversation. It was remarked that the extremely mystical character of the setting rather crushed the mysticism of the play itself. The idea was advanced that a very simple, matter-of-fact, even bleak setting would have been the thing to act as an effective foil to this play. Mr. Chesterton seemed to be not the slightest interested in stage settings, and he knew next to nothing at all about the career of magic. He wasn't even sure whether or not he held any proprietary rights in the play. There was, he said, as though fumbling around in his mind, something involved about the matter... Friend of his wanted a play, necessary to finish it in a hurry. He didn't really know, answering a question to this purpose, whether or not he received any royalties from it. Mrs. Chesterton again handed about some fudge. The collection of ashtrays and bowls surrounding Mr. Chesterton had become jovially freighted with tobacco ash and cigar ends. He smoked his cigars in an economical fashion down as far as they could comfortably be held there was one thing the talk had turned to his lecturing mr chesterton wished you wouldn't do in this country or that we didn't do in england either that was for the gentleman who introduced a lecturer to refer to his message in his own case for instance how ridiculously was this term misapplied the word message conveyed something quite the opposite of personality. Or, that is, before its popular corruption, it had meant something very different. It meant that something was carried. One with a message was a messenger, a vessel, an envelope. It was hard to think of a figure who could rightly be said to have a message. The Old Testament prophets, Mohammed, perhaps, Whitman, now, certainly you couldn't say that Whitman had a message. A ring, and Mr. Cushman came in, youthfully cropped gray hair, a gentleman who looked like a habitual first-nighter. Yes, Mr. Chesterton was telling us, it was a curious thing. he would always heard that Americans worshipped machines. A machine everywhere here, and a machine brought to an amazing state of mechanical perfection, was the elevator— as we called it. When he had first got into an American elevator, he had been arrested by the fact that the men entering it took off their hats and stood silently with bared heads as it ascended. It is so, he had said to himself. They are at worship, at prayer. This is some religious rite, mystic ceremony. The elevator is their temple. Had he been in our subway, was asked. No, no. He had been down in a station one time, but he had not ridden on one of the trains. I wish now that I had thought to cut into the rapid battle door and shuttlecock of the conversation to learn why he had not been. Was he scared of him? What were the things which Mr. Chesterton particularly liked in the United States? Well, for one thing, he very much liked the elevated. He thought it was grand up in the air that way and what had he especially disliked. Mr. Lee apparently had knowledge of a memorandum book kept by Mrs. Chesterton, known to their ultimate little circle as her book of likes and dislikes. She was, with some difficulty, prevailed upon to read from this, which she did very guardedly, clutching the book very firmly before her. Among the things put down in it as not liked were ice cream ice water, American boots, by which was meant women's high-heeled shoes, and interviewers, reporters, and cameramen. Things especially liked included parlor car seats. Mr. Chesterton, I don't dislike it now. I've got the evil habit of ice water. Lift, it was generally agreed, was a happier word than elevator, Mrs. Chesterton thought that the scientific, technical, correct, or whatever you call them, words for things always took all the feeling of life out of them. Aviator, for example, had no color at all, but how fine in the spirit of the thing was the popular term flying man or flyman. The conversation had got momentarily divided into groups. Mr. Chesterton was heard saying to Mr. Wolcott, the time, I mean, was when Yeats was young, when mysticism was jazz. Just how he got started in on them, I do not recall. He began with Bellock's most entertaining and highly vivacious ballad, which has the refrain, And Mrs. James Will Entertain the King, a kind of a peace among friends, which, unfortunately, is not in any book. He recited with a kind of joyous unction, nodding his head forward and back from side to side, thus keeping time to the music of the verse, punctuating the close of each stanza with a bubble of chuckles. On and on and on and on he went, through goodness knows how many bits of rollicking literary foolery. It was half-past eleven. I saw Mr. Chesterton, when someone else was speaking, yawned slightly now and then. The four callers arose to go. Some one of us asked Mr. Chesterton if he expected to be back in America soon. Through a wreath of smiles, he replied that he was not getting a return ticket on the boat. The two of them were framed in their doorway as we got into the foreigner's car. Mrs. Chesterton called to us that she hoped to see us all in England, singly or together. As the car dropped from their floor, both were beaming a merry, friendly farewell. Suddenly it struck me that they were very like a pair of children. They were so happy, so natural, so innocent of guile, and, obviously, so fond of one another. End of chapter 11. Recording by Tom Penn